Right, oh, I've got some other things. I've got all sorts of things. Okay. Just so much to get through. But did we all watch the yes. trailer? Yes. And we've all watched the leaked clip. You, have yes. you seen that yes, again? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And then we all watched the teaser thing as well. Yes. And we saw the news, various bits of news. I suppose yes. we'll just go through them. We have to try and... And posters. Yeah, yes. Your artwork out. Can we talk about a leaked clip? Yeah, fuck it. Most people have seen it. Hardly okay. anybody hasn't. There's no spoilers in it. So we're not really spoiling anything. No, no. It's basically just a typical... Well, we just use the fact that we've seen that as a... Yeah. We'll just use it to talk in general about yeah. the yeah. sort of... Talk, mentioning it is probably the best thing. I think the most interesting thing to talk about is probably not the stuff itself, but what it says about how they're going about things. Mm. And no, when I say how they're going... and stuff. Yeah, but when I say how they're going about things, I don't mean... The imagery, and I don't mean the um, promotion, because mm. that's one thing, because obviously it is, oh, it's a good job we're recording, because I'll have to leave this on now, because we're already into the conversation, aren't we? Uh, this is a Blue Box podcast for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who and a bunch of other stuff, so you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. Hi, I'm Simon. Hi, I'm Matt. And... The promotional stuff is obviously angled in a certain direction, not necessarily because everybody sat down and said, right, what do we want this to look like? But partly because whoever's behind the promotional stuff is probably one guy or a team of guys under, you know, a particular person at the head of it. And whoever is at the head of the team or whoever's responsible for it, you know, Chris Chibnall or whatever will be having conversations with them, but they'll have an idea. They'll have an aesthetic. So the promotion just reflects a person's idea of the aesthetic, doesn't it? Mm. And they'll probably have seen the episodes or they'll have seen, uh, you know, clips and things. They'll have seen, um, what's the word I'm looking for, rushes and what have you. Mm. So they'll have an idea of what it's all going to look like. But the clips and the promotional stuff look totally different. The clips look very cinematic. Mm. Yeah. And they're kind of... Um, not grayscale, but do you know what I mean? The clips are not colourful. Yeah. The promotional stuff is very colourful. Yeah. So I don't, judging by what we saw in any of the things we've seen, the posters don't reflect what we're going to get see the on the I, I reckon the branding is reflecting the mission statement. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, the, the kind of, the, yeah, so the promotional material, there's a definite some 1950s feel to it. I can't decide if it's 1950s or Soviet. I've immediately Europe seen Guardians of the Galaxy. I'm I was, Well, I was thinking Thor Ragnarok. Yes, bit, yeah, yeah, bits yeah. Of the, I mean, this is the trailer now, but there's bits of the trailer. So Thor Ragnarok sort of went between bright colour 1980s yeah. and the actual film itself. There was a little bit of Mad Max in there as well, mm, surrounding mm. The, 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 the city place, yeah. which I saw bits of in the trailer as well. Yeah. I think the 1950s is more... I had more of a 60s vibe. <laughs> maybe just an old-fashioned vibe. Yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah. a retro vibe. Because mm. there's something about the artwork, the way on the you, posters. The poster right, the it's painters. kind of Golden Age Jack, Jack Kirby, which would yeah. be yeah, more 60s, I suppose. But it's... That poster, the one with... Her at the front looking towards us and the three companions, friends rather, at the side looking off. Mm. It's very Doctor Who annual type. Mm. Yeah, I wasn't so taken with that one. But I think that's the look well, that, 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 that one's that going matters, for. Yeah. And you say Jack 
Kirby, the the poster with her with the exploding TARDIS around her or whatever it is, yeah. the kind of weird shapes, that's almost whoever did Doctor Strange. That's kind of yeah, yeah, 1960s. Yeah. Yeah. Is it Ditko? Ditko, yeah. yeah. No, so passed that's, away two weeks ago. Yeah. So that's, last week, that's yeah. got a kind of you know hallucinogenic feel to it. Mm. So maybe they are, well, I wouldn't be surprised if they weren't drawing on kind of a Marvel mm. A marvel aesthetic, and maybe that that's reflected in the effects when we get to the show. Mm-hmm. Maybe, yeah, because yeah. it's a new effects team, isn't it? Well, we've not seen any effects at all, Apart have we? In anything, that we, we haven't seen it. We haven't seen anything. So the, the well, yeah. well, like you were saying, the order there's a definite way they've released these things where they've introduced the companion, the the, the friends <laughs> first without her. Then they, re- then the the long trailer is very much about her. And them, but there's no, there's no detail beyond that. There's which nothing obviously about, I like. Yeah. You know, this, that's nothing. not that's not a complaint because there's that's n- how that's how trailers work. There's nothing so people to tell complain you. about. There's no, but we couldn't see any monsters. We can't see as if they're already watching the episodes, and somehow it's really boring. Well, so in I, the saw, past, I saw comments with the first the first teaser trailer where there was sort of saying, "Well, that told us nothing." <laughs> but but in the past. There have been, and this goes back to the Russell T. Davis era, because they didn't do this as much in the Moffat era. Mm. Money was tighter in the Moffat era, which is why they didn't do it to start. They did one for the 50th, and yeah. they did one for Series 5, but apart from that, I didn't think they did. But in Russell T. Davis, they would always do the teaser, which mm. was a specially filmed thing, which generally didn't have any monsters or any suggestion about where they were going to be going or what they were going to be doing. Mm. It was just... Here's the doctor. Here's the companion. These are the people you're going to be spending the next thirteen weeks or whatever with. And that was what that was for. Mm. And that was what the first one was. The one in the restaurant, the yeah. the uh, cafe. Oh God, the reaction to that. Oh, it's like a pizza delivery advert. They set it in a cafe, <laughs> right? So, and there were three incidents involving the three companions because. Presumably, the idea of that teaser was that these three people don't know each other yet, and it's going to be the Doctor that will bring them together, right? Yeah. So that was the idea of that. They're singing in a cafe, so of course, each one is going to have an incident, you know, involving something that you do in a cafe. That's also perfectly in line with modern Doctor Who. I mean, that goes it all goes all the way back to Rose Tyler and Chips, Chips, yeah, or Beans on Toast, Hmm. or Donna Noble, or yeah, yeah. I mean, that's just what... It's all about humans, normal humans, sitting in cafes doing it. and then suddenly being whisked up onto these adventures. Yeah. So that's... Well, yeah, adding some magic into their mundane lives. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So it was absolutely par for the cause. So the content of it wasn't something you could glean anything from. Because no, the content, we, we yeah. is—it's nothing that we, as yeah. fans, don't know already. So, mm. but if if Chris Chibnall's again this mission statement of of it being an a, an opening for new fans and people to start mm. watching it, that makes perfect sense. But, but the risk yeah. of being overly apologetic for the new series to come, there's nothing to complain. There was nothing in that teaser trailer to complain about. I mean, there's nothing to to like go, oh my god, that's a massive twist about. But you can't. How can you complain? Uh, about about something that's obviously not showing you enough, or just showing you enough to just show you the faces of the people that yeah. are going to be in it, unless well, the faces of the people who are going to be in it somehow offend you. In <laughs> which case, you can, well, you know, 
Go screw yourself. That's a different argument altogether. Um, yeah, it's not a rabbit hole I was planning Where on getting that, down. Where did that come from? Oh, no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I just. <laughs> but the point is, so therefore, the point is, it's not the content, mm. but it's the tone. Yeah. Right. And so it differs slightly from the Russell T. Davis ones. The tone of the Russell T. Davis ones was always bang, bang, bang. Mm. Either lots of talk or lots of action or lots of running, whatever. The Christopher Eccleston one, they were running away from the fire. The one with um, Martha was the, that was the back and forth one, wasn't it? And then the one with Donna was the one. Uh, I that was not the Donna talk. ones at all. There was a Donna one, I'm sure of it. And it was um, like the Martha one, but it was filmed in a different style. So mm. it essentially did the same thing. But with different techniques. Okay. I think, if I remember rightly. But the point was, with the Ross T. Davis one, he'd hit you over the head with a load of stuff while saying absolutely nothing. Whereas the Chibnall one is doing what that clip where they introduced Jodie Whittaker with was doing. Yeah. And that is pairing it right back. So there's a difference in what's cinematic these days. Because television's become just as cinematic as the cinema. That back in even back in two thousand and five, to make something look cinematic, you had to throw massive explosions in. So that sort of fireball explosion with Eccleston running away from it—that's that's Russell T. Davis's way of saying this is going to be more cinematic than the yeah. other series was. Nowadays, you have Game of Thrones with dragons burning entire armies. You've got The Walking Dead, not directly comparable to Doctor Who, but they're still things that are on the television that are more cinematic than most cinema. So the only way to make something look cinematic is by doing what you said, pairing it back and going intimate again rather than... Well, it reminded me of the opening scene of series 10, Mm. where, because you've got a new companion and you had the um, two-minute thing with the Daleks the year before with Bill Parts. So you're kind of half expecting to be thrown in at the deep end, Mm. and then it opens on this really long, languorous shot of this room, and gradually she walks in, and then he follows her in, and it's it's like two or three minutes of really not very much going on, Mm. which opens with like 30 seconds of absolute silence or whatever it was. This reminded me of that, in that what they've done is they've said, okay, here's your expectations, and here's your hat to pop them in while we do something else. Um, But more than that, the little thing that I took about the teaser was the um, the magic fairy dust, for want of a better word, or Mm. whatever Mm. way you want to describe it, that's going through, because that was... That was the um, central conceit of it, wasn't it? Mm. And it was like, like you say, it was like, here are three ordinary people doing something very ordinary in a very ordinary place, and here's a little bit of magic fairy dust that's mm. going to change their lives. And there are all bits and pieces that are good for them. I don't know if I'm... Am I right about the pizza? Is it just... Is it a different pizza? Because there's loads of veg on it. I think it just comes back. It just comes back. I think back. it's just okay. what they want. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing, or it's, what they really want. It's your wishes that you didn't realise you had yeah, and yeah, come yeah. true, sort of thing, or at least mm, sort of edging in that direction. Well, with him, it was just she dunks a sausage in his egg, doesn't she? That's right, that's right. And so then with uh, Yaz, Mandit Girl, she gives her a new pizza. New pizza, yeah. And then with Bradley Walsh, she newspaper with the yeah, which is classic Doctor Who joke, mm. isn't it? Going right back to the Doctor Who and the Daleks movie, mm. where you see all the 
companions reading, you know, heavy going scientific stuff, and then the doctor's reading a copy of the Eagle. Was it the Eagle? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Simon, I was going to say, I'd be interested in any American listeners. Are they going to say Graham? We say Graham. Don't they say Graham? 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 Something? I don't know. Be interesting. Um, <laughs> Sorry. I, do, I do find it interesting. I, was, I only I was, noticed it the other day. Somebody... I was listening to that, preparing to be polite and go, yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> so I, do, I do find it interesting. <laughs> no, I'll, yeah, I'll be interested in. But with Peter, I'm getting more, more that, interesting accents. It sounds like they're going wrong. Well, I don't know. Well, he will Maybe be. He, his name will be said on screen. Yeah. So presumably they'll say his name as it's said on screen. Hmm. Apart from some of them, they'll just say it the way they say it. It's like with the Daleks. Yeah, Dalek, Daleks. Yeah, which a lot of, some Americans say, but most of them say Daleks because that's how it's said on screen. Yeah. And most, mm. well, it's a bit like us. Do we say Munchen or Munich? I mean, we mostly say Munich, right? Because mm. that, but yeah. when it comes to, say, football, we'll say Munchen sometimes because we're talking about the team that's in front of us or whatever. That's not a very good example, actually, because we do call so them Bayern Munich. Watch no, but do you know what I mean? There are instances where you will, you will use both pronunciations for the same word depending yeah. on the yeah. circumstance, and that was a terrible example <laughs> because we do say Bayern Munich. But I'm sure there are examples mm. of times when we will use two different words for the same place, the anglicised one and the original, and I'm sure that'll be the case. Well, with Vincent well. van Gogh. I'm, oh, yeah. Because yeah, that's your... we're going into this. <laughs> oh, it's, I think it's interesting. Yes. It's, it's, <clears throat> did we come to the conclusion it's, it's Hoch, isn't it? Isn't it? Well, uh, it's Hoch. Hoch, yeah. I, well, yeah, that's how it would be pronounced in, in his own language. It's not language, van Gogh, it's not but, van Gogh, it's Hoch. But I think you just speak it however how the convention tells you and wherever you are well and people listening back to this podcast over the years will have heard me pronounce it in at least three if not yeah, four different yeah, ways yeah. when we've been talking about Vincent and the Doctor yeah. so. it's like my insistence is it's Dr. Jekyll rather than Dr. Jekyll I'm moving now towards Dr. Jekyll because every other person calls it Dr. Jekyll but I know it's supposed to be Dr. Jekyll yeah and let's not get into the demons the, the demons <laughs> the demons oh. Yes. Right, moving on. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm, you know, th- this is more of a prediction, and I kind of a hope is that Chris Chibnall, we know, will head down the personal route, don't we? We know he'll probably focus around character. Well, we've seen dinosaurs on a spaceship, which was the first instance of him being thrown just a title and being told to fill in all the blanks himself. Because mm. forty two, yeah, right? I'm trying to remember this rightly, but I'm pretty sure forty two. Ross T. Davis gave him elements to tie together. And I think the same was also true of the Hungry Earth. But I'm pretty sure the dinosaurs on a spaceship and the Power of Three were Chris Chibnall just being Chris Chibnall. So those two are probably the best indication we'll have. And both of those two were ensemble pieces about the characters. So, mm. yeah. I'm just thinking that having that juxtaposition of that... Not mundane, but the fact that we are looking at the characters' lives and and that and that that kind of soapy element, but having a juxtaposition of that, and then if we do get the effects and the way that the alien element of it is that visual and that colourful, I think that well, would be amazing. A slight hint about what that alien element might look like, because we've already seen one thing that the production designers come up with two, probably mm. one of them we're less certain about. 
Okay, the one that we're less certain about is on the poster. Mm. That does look like the TARDIS exploded, so that looks like that's what the TARDIS is going to look like with hexagonal roundels yeah. on white walls, Okay, but with a very Organic. crystalline... Organic. Yeah. yeah, but a very also bright and orange. So it looks like there might be this sort of juxtaposition within the TARDIS of mm. the sort of very old-fashioned ex... Well exterior of the interior the outside of the interior with the actual controls and stuff in the middle looking a lot more like a sort of day glow version of the Eccleston TARDIS maybe mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so there's that but then the other thing we've seen is the sonic screwdriver right mm-hmm. yes and that's just like something out of a David Cronenberg film yeah Cronenberg yeah. or Geiger, I was thinking. So I agreed that it looks. Yeah, I thought it looked. Yeah, but there is a Geiger. Yeah. I was thinking this evening. Yeah, but Cronenberg and Geiger on a million dollars. No, no. Very similar I was thinking how this, the sort of the aesthetics of these things seem to move between organic and and sort of hard technical, and then back again. There yeah. seem to be cycles of these things. And this is and if very you think much. Of, if you think of Alien, they actually have both in the same film. So you have yeah. the Alien technology being like Zygonish. Mm. And then you've got the hard human technology, and Doctor Who, the console, and and now the sonic screwdriver are part of this these sorts of cycles. So the tenant console it looks as though it's been grown, and then you get the late Matt Smith Capaldi console, yeah. which has gone back to the original, and then it sort of moves again this kind of organic direction. And it looks like the production because these are the two things we've seen that the production. Is it a changed production designer? I can't remember. I seem to think it is. Probably is. Isn't it? Yeah, I think it's pretty much a clean sweep. If, if in doubt, so. then yes. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Michael Pickwood left, mm. and so they've got a new one. So the new production designer looks from the two things we've seen: the TARDIS, presumably, and the sonic screwdriver, like he favours organic. Yeah. So, but having said that, the two things we've seen are the two things where if he doesn't favour organic, he'd be given an excuse to favour organic in those two instances. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily telling us anything. It just looks like it is. Because the sonic screwdriver, I don't know if we're heading into spoilers by saying this, but we don't know, so this is speculation. But it looks like she comes down to Earth in the first episode. She's not got the TARDIS. She's not got a sonic screwdriver. And one of the first things she does is she says, well, I need something. So she makes herself a sonic screwdriver. Uh, this sort of... So just to finish that thought, so yeah. the sonic screwdriver is a homemade one as opposed to a TARDIS-produced one, hence the organic quality. The organic sort of works in the series in the series story as well because the last time the TARDIS went from organic-looking to actually solid, old-fashioned mechanical, the Doctor had been trapped in... Victorian London and had time to work on it. Yeah. And even if you think of the five doctors, that's a game where the TARDIS console got a kind of a change in look mm. and the doctor had been working on it. So if the doctor spends time working on it, then he can kind of repair it and fix it. But if the TARDIS blows up and it kind of rebuilds itself, then it tends to become more organic. It tends mm. to be if the TARDIS is left to its own devices. It grows itself. Then it grows itself as rather to building than, itself. Yeah, yeah. And obviously we saw the TARDIS Burning yeah. up behind her. As she was expelled from it. Yeah. Um, so the actual trailer where we get just a handful of clips of just the Doctor and the companions, friends, um, running around 
and we don't see very much else. What did anybody <laughs> make of that? I mean, again, okay, no, go on. Well, I was going to say about the music, actually. Fairly uh, kind of percussive, which is why when I've listened to the composer's other work, that's one thing that struck me. Is it's got Except quite, I think quite it's, a strong rhythmic It's in the music stock, so the music isn't his. It isn't? No. I oh, think okay. The, I think I read somewhere that the music was taken from an earlier Doctor Who episode. Okay. I think. So I don't really? think... Oh, okay. Yeah, well, I don't think well, they've scored it. Yes. completely the wrong tree there. Yeah. Ah, okay. Because it, it felt quite... It was quite traditional, mm. like orchestrated sort of... Well, I'm glad they didn't do what they, they've done on the new Star Trek Discovery trailer. What have they done? That? Oh, I've seen that. Stuck, but... stuck Lenny Kravitz over the top of it. Oh, really? Oh. But I quite like it when Star Trek does that. I oh, like, no, yeah. I like the Enterprise. Sorry, I'm just being picky because I was happy as Larry when they used Beastie Boys. Oh, okay. But yeah. I'm not yeah. a big Kravitz fan. Oh, okay. So. Okay. It looked, that looked like it, just to talk about that trailer. Yeah. It does look very good. It does look very good. It is, yeah. God, Star Trek's much better than Doctor Who. <laughs> You're listening to the Enterprise podcast. And, <laughs> and whilst JR is off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> of which more in a couple of weeks. Um, Sorry, yeah, Doctor Who trailer. Well, yeah, again, you know, we've already said it, but it doesn't tell us anything. It well, I'm just... trying to think about what to say about it. Because, well, you know... It was oh, no, kinetic and it looked lively. I've and got something big to say about it, but okay. I'll save that oh, okay. for a minute while we go through any Costume details. Costume looks great. Me. Really great. Costume works. Yeah. yeah. And you can see her as well in her appearances in San Diego mm. in person. Yes. She's really using, you know, she obviously likes being in that costume and she's using it to great effect. It's already iconic. It's a beautiful piece of... Yeah. That that rainbow stripe is mm. becoming a thing already, isn't it? I mean, more than we've seen for a while. Because Capaldi, with Capaldi, it was Capaldi that yeah. felt like. Whereas his costumes were never sort of, it wasn't really Doctorish. You thought it was going to be when he revealed the sort of red lining of the coat mm. and stuff like that, but that never really returned. No. Whereas this time, it's more sort of, yeah, it's the coat, does it? It's um, and the hoodie. It's in between the fifth doctor and the second doctor. Okay. In as much as the fifth doctor is very sort of ostentatiously a costume, mm. whereas the second doctor is the opposite. And yet, the second doctor is always in the same clothes. So, you know, if you take away the aesthetics of what it looks like, the second doctor's is just as ostentatiously a costume. Mm. And this is ostentatiously a costume. But. It kind of. I think she's working it. It take yeah. It takes the sort of non-naturalness yeah, of the, the fifth doctors, yeah, yeah. and makes it look like something natural that somebody might just wear, mm. while at the same time still being, like you say, iconic and being, you know, that that silhouette, that that look. That's the point. Do you think she'll change bits of it? I think so. it goes. I imagine that so, seems to be yeah. the convention, but that that's. That sort of rainbow effect is so distinctive. Mm. So you haven't had that sort of distinctive part of it. But you but, can lose that for an episode and get it back the following week. Yeah. And... But no, we, we didn't see it, as far as I can remember, on the trailer. And the trailer did look like it was drawn from a number of episodes. About three, I'd say, right. okay. out of ten. Okay. okay. I mean, you know, it's impossible yeah. to say. We could have had yeah. a clip from all ten episodes, yeah. but I suspect... Yeah. Because of the fact that they showed so little, I suspect we had mm. um, a few bits from episode one, 
mm. a few bits from the South Africa episode. Yeah. Probably not a lot else. And there, but there are probably a number of, they probably filmed a number of in South Africa, presumably. They um, filmed exteriors for some. Yeah, it's hard to say. Because they've also for, been yeah. to Spain, I think, and somewhere else as well. I think they've done three foreign trips, if okay. I'm not remembering wrong. I've been, I've not been following spoilers. And they've not given out any details. So all I know is little bits that have accidentally crossed my path on social media. I seem to recall they've done three foreign shoots. Right. Okay. So, you know, looking at that trailer, we've had bits from two or three foreign shoots and bits from episode one. So I don't think we've actually seen... Have we seen anything that confirms our alien planets? We haven't, have we? No, no, but the trailer in very heavily suggests they are, doesn't it? It does. Because I can't remember the dialogue, but there's a line that says New Worlds, just as it then shows a shot of like the sort of desert thing with the spaceships, right? Of course the thing is does she get does she get the TARDIS back in order to do that? Yeah. Yeah. Well I've heard a rumour and this is only a rumour I heard, so I don't think it's a spoiler, but I've heard a rumour and this was a long time ago, so this this could very easily be wrong. But the rumour I heard was that episode one is self contained in Sheffield, mm. and then episode two is where she gets the TARDIS back. Okay, so then they go off planet and into time and space from episode three. I may be wrong, but it made sense rather than this idea of uh, losing the TARDIS for the series. That if if it is that much of a rebooting for people to get injected into the series for the first time, then it makes sense for the mm. TARDIS to be the TARDIS. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, well, and we'll come to that because that's the big thing I want to talk about mm-hmm. is what exactly kind of a shape the reboot is going to form. And I think I think actually all the things we've had, despite the fact that they don't seem to have said anything, I think actually they're given quite a lot away. But we'll come to that. We'll talk about a few of the things they've talked about. Well, OK, before we talk about a few things they've talked about SDCC, let's talk about the leaked clip. OK. Spoiler-free, I suppose, for anybody who's not seen it, but there's not any spoilers in it. But the... My impression of it was, I mean, it was completely standard. It was a completely standard Doctor Who scene. So all you could take away from it was the subtle inflections that let you know what the writer's thinking, the subtle inflections that let you know what kind of performances the actors are going to give. It was quite natural. It was the the pacing and the timing of the delivery of everything was superb. The impression you get from that is that the actors are enjoying working together because comic timing or dramatic timing is something that comes out of actors knowing what each other are going to do, knowing what each other are like. So I got the impression from that that the three of them in the scene, and presumably Bradley Walsh as well, he wasn't in it, get on really well and are having a great time making it. But like Trout and Hines and Patbury was the example I gave in the magazine. I wrote a little bit about it for the magazine. And then the other thing is the choices in the writing. So uh, there have been, in these sort of introductory scenes, there are certain beats that Russell T. Davis introduced that he then did again with Tennant and that Stephen Moffat, rather than, you know, doing something else, he did the Russell T. Davis beats, but he did them in his own way. So the bit about the tongue, for instance. Mm. Oh, sorry, spoilers for anybody. There's a bit about a tongue. 
the bit about the tongue is a little bit like the kidneys things yeah. or whatever. Mm. In a regeneration, there always seems to be uh, a mention. It's like become a standard of the regeneration. Yeah, well, I mean, it was before as well. Yeah. But there's, a, but there's specifically, since Russell yeah. T. Davis, there'll be a mention of an organ, a body right. part, whatever. Yes. So the tongue thing seemed to be a doff of the cap to that, but done in a different way. Mm. Previously, it would be, oh, new kidneys. Oh, new teeth. Oh, new whatever it was, that the other one. You know what I mean? Yes. And this time, instead of, oh, new something, it's, you know, you're a woman. Oh, and what's this thing in my mouth? The line about the teeth is still one of my favourite ever lines in any Doctor mm. Who episode. Right. Oh, the Tenant one. Yeah, in the Tenant one, I just think that's yeah, yeah. That's a genius. Yeah, yeah. And the performance as well. Mm. And this is essentially doing the same thing in a different way. Mm. But also the timing of the dialogue... And the actual things they choose to say, there were certain pauses that you got. Only brief pauses, but certain pauses that probably were there in the writing because they're the kind of things a writer would put in. Because the writer wants to show to the viewer what's going on in the characters' heads without the characters having to say, oh, this is what I'm thinking now. So the writer will put in, you know, bracket, beat, bracket if he wants a slight pause. And there were certain points during that clip where evidently that was happening because the writer was showing the audience who these characters are without the characters having to, you know, turn to screen and introduce themselves. And I think it did a really good job in really subtle ways of showing you how these people think. I mean, without going into actually repeating what the dialogue is, one of the characters gets asked a question and answers it in that character's professional voice. Mm. And then when the person who's asking the question says, well, that's not what I'm asking. I want to know about you. The next time that character answers that question, that character goes halfway. Mm. It, it just, and then the third time is when they actually answer the question that was asked. And that's just a really subtle beat, putting that middle one in. But that shows that character struggling to get out of their professional head and into their personal head. And that's just a really nice character beat, which shows... Because, I mean, often a writer will say, well, this character is a dustbin man. And then you see them on the dustbin lorry, but that never enters their actual character, what they're like. Mm. And this one little dark line, three words or whatever it was, showed that the writer is considering the character's occupation as part of their character. Mm. Because even though their occupation might not be who they are. It will still inform what they're like mm. and their experiences. But it was also a scene about occupations. So not to give it away, was, anything, yeah, yeah. it's about her not knowing who she was and looking for a particular occupation without knowing that that's what she was in the first place. Yes, yes. So it's developing that kind of idea. Yeah. And like I say, I think the way it was written develops those ideas in a really nice way that's both humorous and gives you a lot of detail about the characters without really sort of doing it heavy-handed. Mm. That's as much as I really want to say about that. I'm sure Simon wants to say something about the look of it all. Yeah, the lighting. Go ahead. It's gorgeous. Well, what's the difference between the lighting? <laughs> and... <laughs> well, I don't know if it's different, but it just felt, well, I suppose it was cinematic, moody. Uh, as we say, it odds with these, these huge amounts of colour that we're seeing in all the branding. 
So again, it backs up this idea that the branding is to do with the attitude of the series and an entry point of what people should expect. But equally, it's it's I don't know. Hopefully, it's a hybrid. It's a it's some kind well, of hybrid of. So the clips that we've seen mm. have been quite dark, and the the fragments of footage in the the trailer have mm. been sort of Mad Maxi mm. kind of explosions, dust, darkness. Mm. But the introductory clip that revealed Jodie Whittaker mm. was very green and sort of pleasant and fantasy and sort of Harry Potterish. Yeah, so you, I wonder if that's going to you be... You could argue there's kind of a Matrix thing going on, this whole well, idea. Yeah, or, just, or just that's what happens when the series is in a safe place mm. and actually the threat to that, so the adventures are taking place where it's contradictory or con- contradicting that, which is the kind of the dust and the darkness. Mm. So you've got effectively a sunny character running through running through a sort of dark rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah. Well, as much as if Capaldi was in it, you'd need to surround him with butterflies and, <laughs> and like, rainbows because he's a very dark character running through it. Do you know what has been unfair is I saw some people, I don't know if it's on Twitter or what, but uh, sticking the two images next to each other, the, the really full-colour Jody one, next to the last promotional, serious promotional shot of Capaldi and put the two mm. next to each other. What? I don't know what you're... Well, and, and the inference being, oh, look how amazing it looks and how dull the old one looks. I don't think... You... Well, no, Doctor Who changes, doesn't it? it yeah, but I, don't, I says... don't know what you're achieving by doing that. But I mean, there is a positive way of looking at it. Oh, look, it's changed again, which is great. Yeah. But yeah. the other one's no less... Well, it's like putting a picture of uh, Nightmare of Eden next to a picture of Genesis of the Daleks, really, isn't it? I'm just a picture of the revolver cover next to the Sergeant Peppers, you know? Yeah, yeah. What's the... I don't really see the... No. Do we think it's going to be in wide, widescreen? Because the the clip, the trailer, everything else has all been in wide, widescreen. Oh, you didn't notice? I didn't notice. I know, black bars at top and bottom. Okay. Yeah. They're filming on new lenses, new cameras. Hmm. So the new cameras have got anamorphic lenses, which doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be in wide, widescreen, but it means they've got the option of it being in wide, widescreen if they want. So the trailer has been, which could simply be that they've not cropped it and it'll be cropped when it's on telly. So the bit at either side could just be superfluous and they've left it in the trailer to make the trailer look cinematic. But the clip that escaped was also in wide, wide screen, which suggests to me that that's what the series is going to be. So I don't know if it's 2.35 to 1. I think it might be 2.0 to 1. But it's wider than... 2.35 to 1 is Star Wars yeah. cinemascope, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That's the standard wide, wide screen. But there's all sorts of variations. 16 by 9 is the standard. Well, 2.1 to 1 is a popular one. But I think Telly likes 2.0 to 1 because it's halfway in between the two. Matt, this is well, all stuff that people are interested in talking about, whether you are or not. Okay, well, I'm not talking. Yeah. <laughs> so that's fine. I'm, I'm happy to not Your listen. t-shirt's very colourful. It reminds me of the... Uh... Yeah. Great audio. Vivid. Maybe vivid is a better word. Yes. Yeah. 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 Colourful. Yeah. Should we go through a couple of things that were said at SDCC? Okay. Yeah, you tell me. I don't know anything. Okay, Chris Chibnall said it's going to be 10 standalone episodes. There's not going to be any two-parters. He didn't 
say insofar as I'm aware whether that meant there's going to be or not any kind of running theme or arc through the 10 episodes I would imagine there'll be something yeah yeah but I've but, seen commentary that says maybe that's not the case but I think that just means that's just it's people jumping to jump be, into conclusions you know, from what stories. he said yeah, yeah 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 so it's going to be 10 distinct stories um all new monsters as far as I'm aware. Yeah, does get to that say, in a minute, because okay, I want to talk yeah, about yeah, a number yeah. of episodes first. He okay, also good. confirmed there'll be a Christmas episode. <laughs> he didn't actually say there'll be a Christmas episode. He said, oh, we promised 10 and we're filming an 11th. I wonder what that could be. And somebody asked him if there was going to be a Christmas special. So, you know, there's yeah. going to be a Christmas special as well. Okay, so no returning monsters. Does it say no returning monsters? Right. Or he it said say that. He said it's all new stories, all new monsters, all new characters. Right. And people took that to mean there'd be no returning elements at all. He went on to say later on that this is Doctor Who uh following Capaldi in the same way as Spearhead from Space was Doctor Who following the War Games. Right. He said he didn't say this but he said, but this is the way I rephrased it, because I, I, I thought this was a better way of saying it. But <laughs> He said, it's a new broom, not a clean sweep. Okay, yeah. Nice so, way of putting it. <clears throat> so in other words, it's still Doctor Who, yeah, but it's just going to be slightly different than before. And they've all said variations on that. But somebody actually asked him outright, will there be any Daleks in Series 11? And he said, no, there will not. That doesn't necessarily mean there won't be anything returning. Well, firstly, but that's what people are taking it. Firstly, to it doesn't mean that he's telling the truth. Well, that's true that's as well. Yes, and no new—if he said no new monsters—that doesn't necessarily mean no old monsters returning. That might mean no, no monsters from the new series returning. Yeah, so a reimagined version of another old monster. Well, all, so, when he said all new stories, all new monsters, yeah. all new characters, that's promotion speak yeah. to say yeah. expect to see lots of new things. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily mean don't expect yeah. to see anything old at all whatsoever. So I'm not going to dig my heels in and say, oh, but if I get to see some character from series 23, I'm going to be mightily pissed off after we said my, all new characters. Just put my nerd hat on and go, uh, you know, no new monsters, but it doesn't mean the master couldn't come back. <clears> That's very true. Yeah. But I think I could see why it's an entirely original. For his, for his first series and everything's new, you might as well just make the whole thing completely new. Do we know real details on writers? No, but he has confirmed that it is essentially a version of the writer's room. Okay. He said that now. He didn't use the term writer's room, but he was asked, is it a writer's room? And he says, what we've done is something in between the British way of working and the American way of working. working. So there's a bunch of writers. I can't remember exactly how he phrased it. He essentially said there's a bunch of writers who've all been contributing and we've gone midway between the English and the American version. Mm. Be quite nice as if it is all there aren't any classic monsters at all. Just, just in as much as if you're getting a breath of <clears> fresh air and a clean sweep of the right, you know, the writers that are involved in it, that they get the chance to kind of go, you know, just just go for it and create something completely new for themselves and saying, right, this is the premise, you know, a box that can go anywhere in time and space. What do they well, need? And then don't. It's going to be a. Learning... This was my big point. Go Sorry, on, Matt. It's going to be a learning curve, I think, because. Certainly for me, I've watched Doctor Who in the past, 
knowing that certain writers have certain personalities when they're writing. So I know when Mark Gatiss has written an episode, I'm expecting a certain type. When Gareth Roberts has written one, I'm expecting a certain type. And this time, I suspect we won't have that. We'll have different voices for mm. each story, mm. but it'll be much more blended yeah. if, if that's the interpretation. And I'm not sure if I'm... My instinct is I'm not comfortable with that, but then I'll see it and see how it goes. Well, but I quite like I quite like that feeling being of... Being uncomfortable, of, yeah. Well, I quite... But I quite like the feeling of... Not knowing, knowing what to expect. Or, kind of, but... But that, that feeling of seeing distinctive writers on each episode, so having a particular writerly voice on a particular episode, I like that. But then I've watched American television, I've watched Westworld, and Westworld you don't have... And the West Wing, you you have sort of... You don't have that kind of, oh, this person obviously wrote that, and this person wrote that. Mm. So it's it's getting getting into that mindset, I think. Mm. And seeing how that works in Doc with Doctor Who, seeing how Doctor Who that feels, because Doctor Who's always been a writer's a writer's medium. It hasn't yeah. been a director's medium. It's only fans that notice the directors. It hasn't been a producer's medium. It's only the fans that notice the producers. And I think really, it's been a producer's really... medium to an extent, um, broadly. But I think. But it's a, the a casual, a casual the fan is more likely, yeah. more, more likely to tell the difference between writers. I mean. A casual, casual viewer won't know the difference between Robert, Robert the Holmes. Yeah. But, but I think the writer is the first thing you notice once you start looking behind the scenes, and that breaks it. That that detaches that away. It's quite nice in as much as it's knocking out that element of preconception. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's a really healthy thing good. to do. Isn't right. It? Here's my big theory. Okay. And I think everything points towards we, this theory. We need a pod a podcast theme tune for JR's, <laughs> JR's big yearly theory. It's not. No, it's not. Okay. Uh, no, I'm not going to say. Oh, this is what I think will happen. Right. I'm going to say what I think they're doing. Okay. Doctor Who's been on for 55 years, right, or whatever it is. So yeah, for 55 years. Despite the fact that things keep changing, that producers and writers and doctors and companions come and go, because it's been on for 55 years, the audience thinks they know what it is. I think Chris Chibnall's big thing is, we've got a woman doctor. I don't think he's cast a woman doctor because she's a woman. Mm. And here we are wanting to make a big statement about the fact that the doctor can be a woman. I think he's cast a woman doctor because nobody's ever cast a, do- a woman as the doctor before. And I think what Chris Chibnall wants to do is say, right, forget every preconception that's entered your head over 55 years of television and look at this thing in a completely new way. Yeah. And by having a woman as the doctor, that is the first really big step into having to re-engage with the programme without those preconceptions. Mm. So that's a statement of intent. There's a woman behind the TARDIS, so this is not going to be Doctor Who quite as you know it. So forget everything you know about Doctor Who. Go back to what Doctor Who was right at the very start. And in the very first episode in 1963, four people enter a box. And the crucial thing is not that those four people don't know where they're going and what they're going to be doing, and what they're going to see. 
but that the audience don't know either. Mm. And in 1963, you've got no social media and like maybe 1% of the people watching Doctor Who are reading the Radio Times. And even the Radio Times, you only get to find out what the title of the next week's episode is. You don't even get to find out how many parts each of the stories is going to be. You certainly... In December, when you first see the Daleks, you certainly have no preconceptions about what the Daleks are going to be. You don't even know that there are going to be monsters in Doctor Who until the Daleks turn up. And then when the Doctor goes into history and meets Marco Polo and Kublai Khan, the audience, some of them, are pre-warned that that's what's going to happen because they've read it in the Radio Times. But for the majority of the audience who've just watched the Daleks and the Edge of Destruction, suddenly being thrown into history is a whole nother, oh, what's going on now moment. Mm, mm. I think Chris Chibnall has gone back to the absolute basics and said, right, what happens in this story? Four people enter a box and they don't know what they're going to be doing and the audience doesn't know what they're going to be doing either. And he has stripped away all of the preconceptions. Like, for example, the thing about calling the companions friends. Mm. These four people are put together. That makes them companions because they're companions on this journey. But put it this way. If, say, one of us went on a boat ride Mm. and the boat got cast adrift and we were stuck on a boat for, you know, 13 weeks or whatever with three other people... And we managed to work through all the problems we had to become friends at the other end of it. And then we got off the boat at the end and somebody came up to you and said, how was it with the four of you? You wouldn't look around and say, well, me and my companions in this, you know, we argued at first and then we got on. You'd say we became friends. Mm. So Chibnall and his or, team... Or food. Or food. But Chibnall and his team... Have looked at what happens. (laughs) They've looked at what happens when four people go into the box and go off on adventures, and they've said, "Right, companions is the preconceived way we talk about this, but actually, what they're doing is becoming friends. So let's use the word friends instead. And what using the word friends instead of companions does is it takes away the preconception and it replaces it instead with the actual idea that you had in the first place." And I just think everything we've seen, including the sonic screwdriver, and as we've discussed, there is an in-fiction reason for it to be so different. But the sonic screwdriver, again, is another way of taking away the preconception and replacing it with the fact, with the idea. So all the all the notions that surround the ideas have been taken out and just the ideas have been left. And that's why I think they're probably won't be any returning characters or monsters because I think they want it to feel to us like series one did, season one did back in 1963 and 1964 where you really don't know what's coming next. Mm. And even if there were 10 episodes and one of them had Daleks, everybody would be able to say, oh, well, this is the Dalek episode. But you take the Daleks out altogether and nobody can say about any of the episodes, oh, well, this is the the episode, Mm. the Mm. thing. This is going to be the episode in which the thing happens. They want you to sit down and watch Doctor Who and not know what it's going to be. Any further than that is four people in a box and they're going to be in a different place every week. Mm. And I think that's... And, you know, it, I built it up because I said, oh, yeah, I want to talk about this. Yeah. But it's not really a big idea. I think no, it's, it's pretty obvious that that's what I mean, they're doing. Back, but, back to basics. Yeah. Like what it is. 
yeah. is something that happens. It happens in Bond. It happens in Star Trek. And it's always generally the same thing. It's just sometimes they go back to basics in different ways. I mean, it's what mm. happened with Eccleston. They <clears throat> sort of stripped it down. Yeah. And they did have returning monsters in, in Eccleston's first series. But at that point, they, they, weren't, weren't, returning they weren't returning because they've done 15 because years. Never had, we haven't had a new Doctor Who series. So yeah. the Daleks turning up. It was the first time the Daleks had turned up for most of the sense. Yeah, um, and it could so easily have not had Daleks. Yeah, so yeah. it would have been a complete series of like all time. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, but yeah, yes. I mean, that the, they're there to facilitate the story, and they're not there to be the thing, mm. the Autons. So yeah, I just think, like you say, it is back to basics, but it's done. But it's the way they've gone back to basics is that. Instead of because sometimes when you go back to basics, you look at what the ideas are, and you don't strip away the preconceptions, but you address the preconceptions. Mm. But I think what they're doing here is they're not addressing the preconceptions; they're stripping them away. Yeah, stripping the irony away. So yeah. sometimes, yeah. so Stephen Moffat was very good at going back to basics, but having sort of winks and nods mm. towards what you're expecting and yeah, Doctor yeah. Who's known for. So that's really an ironic way of, of doing it. Whereas there's a sincere way of doing it, which is like, like Casino Royale was with the the Daniel yeah. Craig Casino Royale, rather than die another day with invisible cars. Hmm. You went, you absolutely stripped almost too much, back to basics. You stripped everything out, and there wasn't any sort of irony. It was just, you know, a cold spy thriller, with with a, a violent guy in it, and that's what Bond is at its very very basic core. And this is Doctor Who doing the same thing yeah. with its own past. It's saying, forget what the past told you about what the mm. programme is. Don't forget the past, but forget what it told you mm. about what the programme is. And re-engage with the programme. I mean, it's no Fantastic Four, is it, Josh? Is it Josh Trank's Fantastic Four? <laughs> I, I actually watched that. Did you? It really is bad. It I wasn't, didn't think it was that bad a film. It, like start, just, it started like prom, it started promisingly, but it just fell off at the edge of a cliff. Yeah, yeah. It just it, had no ending. No, no. And that that's. I mean, it was half a film. No, it was at least said that it's a very. It would be a very good kind of pilot. Yeah, for a, a good ongoing, first episode for yeah. a series, for a television series. But I think my my what I'm what I'm meaning with that is that that took elements of Fantastic Four and and rejiggled it and yeah. took away expectations, but in the process, took away that dynamic that was so great about Fantastic Four, which was which was the family. It had family yeah. in there, yeah, but it wasn't the relationships weren't the same. The relationships were the big thing about Fantastic Four. But that but that film kind of offered twists on mm. on what you're expecting from Fantastic Four. Mm. But I think. This time, I don't think there are going to be twists on on what you're expecting. No, I don't think, for, for instance, well, the they've, ca- they've cast a woman, and I don't think that's going to be a twist. I think they've cast a woman, and that's just the fact. Obviously, that's there's, the there's that element of it, it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. Taken, and, and you're right, you've kept, they've kept hold of the bare bones of it, which are the mm. bits that work, but they've stripped everything else back so that you literally don't know what is on yeah. the bones. Well, so I because don't, every yeah. companion we've had since Rose has been a twist on Rose. So Rose was the one the Doctor fell in love with. So the next one's the one who's in love with the Doctor who he doesn't love. So that's a twist on what they did with Rose. And then 
Donna comes in, and apart from the fact that half that series was about Rose coming back anyway, which sort of shunted Donna off to the side a bit, but Donna was very ostentatiously the one that doesn't fall in love with the Doctor. So again, that was a twist on Rose. Then Amy comes in. She's the one damaged by the Doctor as a child. So that's a twist on, you know, the fact that Rose comes in as a grown-up. So it's like a new way of doing the same thing. Mm. And then you've got Clara, which kind of does the same thing as Amy, except in reverse. So each time, each time we've had a companion since Rose, it's always there's always, so it's always been like the companions regenerating as well, isn't it? Well, it's like, but it's yeah. like the relationship between the companion and the Doctor does have that knowing twist in that there's a thing where the program winks at the audience and says, "Right, you remember that thing? Well, this is different to that thing mm. in this way." And Whereas, it, is, it is a bit like Spearhead from Space in that respect, because Spearhead from Space very much was stripping everything away. A new and, dynamic. And actually stripped more than more than you'd be comfortable away, because it stripped the TARDIS away as well. And the Back first episode of this, or at least at the start, has mm. done that too. Yes. Yeah. I don't know whether that's a deliberate nod to the fact that what they I'm, did that then. But... What I'm hoping, because, as you, as you say, it's, it's all about, are they going to twist on what you're expecting? And I'm hoping not... And I'm hoping that that's the leak clip is the only part of the whole series where she actually makes a comment about being a woman. Because, I don't know. Because I, don't I think, think if can... they stop, but I think if they continue to play, if they they make a big thing about that, or they continue to play on it, then it's kind of going to be kind of. I kind know. Of going I don't diminish. Yeah, I don't think there'll be jokes. I used to be a man. No. But, but there, there will be there was, one, there was one in the leaked footage. There was. I'm, I'm hoping that that is yeah, the one. Yeah. And after that, they just get on with yeah, it. Yeah. But there will be situations where the Doctor has to address the situation mm. in a different way because she's a woman rather than a man. But we'll just see her see her do that. Yes, exactly. Rather than comment on it. Yes, because I think that's yeah. that's one of the the sort of back to basics things. Yeah, we're now going to see the Doctor as a woman just carrying on. Well, the way that, in that clip, the way that 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 mention of the fact that she used to be a man Mm. was set out there and then moved past quickly, it did look like that would just about be it. Yeah. There's no reason after that point for it to come up again. I mean, the way that was going to be the challenge was... How are you going to do that thing? every... Well, so many people were saying, well, how are they going to deal with this? How... He's changed sex. How are they going to deal with it? Are Are they going to, like build it into the series is she's going to act differently and actually the only way to contend with that is just by saying no it's not going to be different they're not going to deal with it they're just going to carry on but you have to acknowledge it so, acknowledge. so you acknowledge it really quickly and as just, a joke and move on yeah and hopefully i'm hoping that's well that's it did. Case. i can't see how else they would have done it no and that clip yeah like i just said very much gives you the impression that yeah. that's that done yeah and like I say, there'll be times when it'll be part of the story that she has to deal with things in a different way because she's a woman. But they're not going to say, but she's not going to walk into a room and start saying, I used to be a man in, tr- in order to try and get people on her side or whatever. That would just be crazy. Anybody got anything else they want to bring up about all of this? Oh, I was going to say, I wonder if, and I really hope, being such a big Donna fan, that Graham's role is very much similar not just from a comedy point of view but maybe the same dynamic between the doctor and and donna where, where there's, I mean, see, yeah. I think my, my impression is he's going to be a more serious character than you imagine yeah. from what he looks like in the posters and the clips and the fact that they've cast bradley walsh and you're 
you automatically think. So if you've seen, you really the, think, if you've seen the parts that yeah, Paddy Walsh has played, they've but... always been quite dour yeah. and actually not comedic. Yeah. And I think he does that really well. And the, there's, there's an argument for saying yeah. that a comedic actor, though, someone like Catherine Tate did. Yes. Her, her strength in that series isn't the comedy, it's mm. the emotional stuff. Yeah. And it could well happen again. Mm. Um, um, yeah. they, it looks, it doesn't look like any of the four of them are there for comic relief. No. It looks like they're all there to do a job mm. and be and be the new Dr. Susan, Ian and Barbara, frankly. Just slightly switched around in the genders and the ages. But yeah, the, 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 um, I think it's Tosin Cole. He's your new mm. Ian, right? Right, okay. So, it's, Mandic it's, Gill... It's struck me no, today. Barbara Wright, not Ian Wright. Sorry? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's, struck, it's struck me today, I have no idea who the actor, what the actors are. I haven't learned the actors' names. Right. Which got, is a... Now, Doctor Who's been going for, on for too long. I can't long remember my now. friends' names sometimes. Who yeah, I know. I'm going to try and do it then. Tozen okay. Cole is Ryan, and I think he's... You know, I'm not going to say these are, you know, necessarily as straightforward as this but essentially in how the characters fit together you get the impression Tozen Cole is probably going to be the Ian Mandit Gill is probably going to be the Susan um, Bradley Walsh is probably going to be the Barbara and obviously you know you've got Jodie Whittaker as the Doctor if you see what I mean okay so Yaz the one played by Mandit Gill is the one who can go out and be a bit forthright but also a bit naive Perhaps. Mm. So Tozen Cole is there maybe for the sort of to be the strong arm, I guess. And I guess Bradley Walsh is there to be kind of the level head. Yeah, but the one you're saying is sort of the Susan. She's a policewoman. So therefore she's going to be yeah, but useful. Oh, I'm not saying she's not going to be useless. That's what I'm saying. I'm not saying there is these are exact correlations. No, no. I... But I'm saying within the fiction, you need a character who's the one who's going to say, right, let's go and do this, and not the, necessarily I mean, stop let's face themselves. it, that each of them is, is a catalyst for a certain facet of yeah. storytelling, and that's it? what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, right. So, and I'm just making a correlation because you had four characters at the start, mm. and each one of those characters, you know, was a, a catalyst for things in different ways. I love seeing Graham wearing a bag as well. Of course, yeah, because they don't do it. No, but they just don't do it. It doesn't do it. They don't. They don't leave the TARDIS and take a bag of useful stuff with them. Okay, do okay. they? I, I didn't notice it. I don't notice. Yeah, it. yeah it's got you, a... know, you seem to have noticed everything I didn't. Yeah, but <laughs> see, that's another example of what I'm saying about forget your preconceptions. Yeah. If you were travelling in the TARDIS and you were going out somewhere, you would take a bag of useful yeah, stuff. Yeah, you take right? a backpack with you. And because they never did in the past, it's kind of become established that yeah. that's what they do. They don't. So instead, they've said, right, well, let's think about this, wouldn't they? Oh, except except Rose does, doesn't she, in the end? Because she treats it like, especially because she comes back, and then when she goes again, then she's got a full-blown rucksack, like she's going off backpacking. Are you talking about the end of Series 4? I'm talking about um, after the end of, uh, after World War 3. There's definitely a scene where she she turns up with a rucksack. She goes back to her house and takes a bit more with her. This yeah, is what she's doing. I think she's yeah. Kind yeah of but the rucksack then stays in the TARDIS. She doesn't take it out on adventures. Oh, okay. So Graham takes it out on adventures. Well, or, that's what Simon was saying. It looks like. It looks and like if, yeah, I think it's when they're out in the desert and there's okay. a desert location. He's there with a 
Okay. Is there yeah. a bag? Which I think. And if that's the case, I know it's a subtle yeah. thing, but actually, yeah, okay. it's kind of like, yeah, why have they never done that before? Okay. Because yeah, and that's the one thing the new series is often done is why have they never done that before? And yeah. So let's do it. Anything else, or should we just quickly romp through a million other things? Because we've not done this for six weeks, so or however long it is. So there's a whole load of other do, things. Do you know what's lovely? I, I I'll come up with a confession now, which is that at the tail end of last series, um, earlier this year, I was kind of Doctor Who'd out mm-hmm. in a big way, and I felt like I needed to take a step back from it in a lot of ways. Okay, and this has me really excited because it feels like a completely new series. Yeah. And now you're I don't feel like I need to refer back to the old series at all in my head, which is a really... But you are watching the old series. I am watching the old series. every day. But equally, that is so far back. Right, yeah. And so detached from what's going on. Spoilers for a podcast we recorded last week, but that isn't going out for a fortnight. Simon is watching an episode a day of series one currently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm up to episode two of Sensor Rights. Hmm. at this point in time so I haven't done very well in the, in the day <laughs> yes, by day yeah, thing yeah. considering the last episode I, had, I was just about to watch it well the last um, time we talked about this which will be the next time the people listening hear you you're just about to start the sensor rights yeah. <laughs> right other business loads and loads of it I got a couple of things in the post which I oh that's a tome the Stanley Kubrick Space Odyssey making of a masterpiece book by Michael Benson I just wanted to bring it in, and it, I've only dipped into it, but it looks like a... Because we talked about Kubrick the other week, didn't we? So this is relevant to what we talked about the other week. But, I mean, dipping into it, it really... Because sometimes when you get books about the making of a film, they just kind of tell you the facts, and they tell you sort of what happens in the script and how that bit of the script came to be written. But this is actually written by Michael Benson almost like a story with the characters. It's not written in a sort of fictional way, but the way he tells the story is you see Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick moving around from one thing to another, from one location to another, from one relationship to another, from one meeting to another. And the way he tells the story, you follow the people. Mm. So it... So unlike some stories where they talk about the making of the film, which is all about the production, this is all about the people. So it seems like a much... more like a biopic. A biography. Yeah, yeah. This is like a biography of the film. Yeah, which works. Which works quite well because the film is Arthur C. Clarke and Kubrick. Yeah, yeah. That's that's you've got two two voices, very distinct voices to follow. Yeah, and that's so. Anybody with an interest, I definitely recommend getting that. The other thing I've got does that does that include because they've recently discovered a new new audio or a new clip or audio footage of Kubrick talking about 2001. Oh, I don't know. I have you, seen that? Have you so. seen that? Have you found that? No, I... If you look it up on YouTube, um, it's it's him phoning into a television station somewhere and basically really? saying what he thinks 2001 means, which is completely rare. For I mean, it's not something Kubrick does. Actually, but actually, it's yeah. the sort of thing Kubrick does because yeah, yeah. he just does random things. But they've managed to find... I don't know how authentic it is, but... People are saying it's the other thing I've been sent after David Banks was on. Well, we recorded it a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago. He sent me a copy of the archive tapes, which is a thing you recorded. It's not what you know, it's who you know. Well, a thing you recorded because it's going to be, um, it's 
this issue of it is like a independent production, but Big Finish, I believe, are going to start stocking it. So there's going to be some promotion for it somewhere later in the year. But it's his Cyberman book, hmm. where he um, tried to sort of make sense of the continuity errors of the Cyberman storyline, especially during the 60s, I guess. And the way he did that, have either of you read it? Yes. Right, the way he does that is he kind of fictionalises the biographer of the Cybermen. Yeah. So... It's quite good. Oh, yeah, it's, the way he does it is right. it's really nicely done in that it turns something that could have been a really dry text mm. into something that comes alive. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Iceberg is built into it. Yeah, or but he doesn't... Out of it. He doesn't overdo it. No. So the, the way you've got the biographers, he calls them the... Um, the archivists, I think that's just as simple as that. The way he does the biographers, he doesn't make them the story. Hmm. But he just uses them as a way of telling the story without it getting dry. Anyway, back in the late 80s, early 90s, he recorded all those archivists' bits on audio and they were released on four tapes across a period of maybe two years or something. I can't remember, I'm not sure, this is a long time ago. But they were reissued together in one set on CD, I don't know, fairly recently, a few years back. And they're going to be apparently stopped by Big Finish at some point soon. Um, I've dipped into this again. I've not had time to listen to the whole thing, but I've dipped into it. And David Banks reading his own book with a little bit of um, production on it but not so much that it's distracting. So it's nicely done. It's gorgeous to listen to. Mm. So, mm. I mean, I actually, anybody who didn't realise it was around or anybody who knew of it but has never bothered or whatever, you can go and buy it now on Amazon. Mm. But I but I see that kind of thing, fictionalising the errors, mm. sort of retconning or dotting the I's and crossing the T's, is not usually my kind of thing. But to have David Banks doing it in his own voice from his own writing, because obviously he's the best person to read it because he understands. I've always quite been slightly... I've not been obsessed by it, but I've always enjoyed it when Lance Parkin does it. Mm. That's quite... I find the detail and no, right, anything yeah. with footnotes just feels like somebody's really worked at it. And even... Um, is it Le Fissier who did the Terrestrial Index? Yeah. Because he did a similar thing there, the history of the Earth yeah, yeah. through Doctor Who. Oh, yeah, quite yeah. like that sort of thing. <laughs> so anyway, the archive tape Cybermen, read by David Banks. Lovely. And an 80s Cyberman on that, or 80s Cyber Leader on the cover as well. Mm. Oh, yeah, I'm a big fan of those those ones. Is right. That, is that Earthshock with glass jaw? It's Earthshock, isn't it? Yeah, because they start with the glass jaws and they move away from that, don't they? Mm. I think... I've got a ton of stuff that I've watched and listened to. I've got two big finish. I've, I'll race through the reviews. Okay. So, big finish. Iron Bright, Sixth Doctor on his own. Isambard Kingdom Brunel. Um, written by Chris Chapman. Really nicely done. Sixth Doctor is perfect, Doctor. Cliff, Cliff Chapman? Not Cliff Chapman. Um, oh, Chris, Chris Chapman. Chapman. Sorry. No, did I said did say Chris Chapman. Okay, that's fine. Oh, did I? No, I misheard. Oh, okay. Anyway, Chris Chapman, yeah. So, really, really nicely done. Sixth Doctor, perfect Doctor to have on his own. And um, the only thing... that It's one of those stories where the writer 
and you know I love this because I talk about it all the time on the podcast, he uses the premise of the story to solve the story. And you don't get that as often as you think. So when somebody does that and does it well, especially when you're not expecting it, because the way the story goes off, you kind of think that's not going to happen, and then it does. So that was a really nice surprise. And the whole thing was just really nicely done. The only thing is, they used a really young actor to play... Brunel and while that's great and you're giving a leg up to a young actor and he's a good actor he gives a really good performance he doesn't have quite the charisma that you'd probably associate with Brunel but then again having said that the Brunel in the story is a very young Brunel so probably that's appropriate um the other big finish is Hour of the Cybermen which I talked obviously to David Banks and Andrew Smith about and which lives up to all the expectations you might have of it so fantastic absolutely great story I can't really say more than that we talked about it a lot last week and it it, it didn't disappoint um, I've got a bunch of films to review but I have also got three instalments of Logan's Run so I'm going to do them while we're still on the subject of Doctor Who and before we get into the films we'll How are David good. Banks' voices on that audio by the way? Excellent. Sorry. Is that what you were looking for? I wasn't actually, but I'm very kind of low level impressed by that. No, no. on Hour of the Cybermen, yeah. they Andrew Smith gives him a bit more to do than you would probably expect from the cyber leader on the very telly. excellent, but <laughs> most satisfactory. Yeah, he do, he does it. He just does it. I just love he's the great. sound of it. Yeah, he's probably a, yeah. Oh no, he's fantastic. Mm. And there are a couple of moments where he's sort of, right, I'm in to do the cyber leader, I'm doing the cyber leader. <laughs> it's tremendous fun. Um, <clears throat> right, uh, if anybody forgets, Logan's look, eight-year-old Logan is um, the son of one of our listeners who has been going through the entire series with him and we're up to season 18. And so this is what eight-year-old Logan thinks of The Leisure Hive. He says, I like the new theme music and new titles, and I'm also pleased that we have K9's original voice back. Mm. However... (laughs) Short-lived, gone, sorry. However, I didn't like the long opening scene with the Doctor sleeping on the beach. The story was good, and I like how in the first episode, Pangol was able to make parts of his body separate from each other because it was only an image. I like the Fomasi, or Fomasi, never get that right it's Fermasi Fermasi yeah Yeah. Yeah. but I didn't like the Argolins much score 7 out of 10 Megalos I thought it was weird to have an intelligent (laughs) cactus it was quite nice to have two versions of the Doctor which I thought made the story a bit better I thought it was funny how the Doctor Romana and K9 kept repeating the same actions over and over again but I didn't think this story was very good 4 out of 10 wow Oh, speaking of Andrew Smith, full circle. This story was good. It was weird how the Marshmen, which is a type of man, lived under the water. It was also weird that the spiders hatched out of the river fruit, which looked just like a watermelon. I didn't like Canine getting his head knocked off, and I didn't like Romana getting taken over and having blue veins on her face. Six out of ten. State of Decay. This was a good story. I think the vampires are the toughest villains we have seen so far because they can control people. The ending was weird because I didn't realise that the great vampire was going to be so big. 
I want Adric to stay on board the TARDIS, so I hope the Doctor doesn't return him to the Starliner like he said he would. We oh, don't... he'll learn. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got up to the middle point of season 19, so we'll see. Okay. Uh, we don't see much of K9 in some stories. I wish we got to see more of him. 7 out of 10. I really like State of, State of the K. And, and considering I'm a I'm not a vampire fan at all, I really like that story. I think State of Decay is one of those ones where they don't do a very good job of making it tread water during episode three. It's a bit like Creature from the Pit in that the whole thing just stops with a few people in the mm. caves and goes nowhere for an episode. Mm. And I think if it wasn't for that, I think I'd like it a lot more. But yeah. I like what they do with Erdrick in it. Yeah, yeah. It's a shame that didn't really continue. Anyway, Warrior's Gate. I think this is a complicated story. The gateway with the mirrors was creepy, and it was weird that the Tharrells were kings, but then were killed by the Gundan robots. I liked people walking around in the white void, and I liked that people could walk through the mirrors at certain times. I found the Doctor moving backwards and forwards in time, and the banquet table with all the cobwebs pretty complicated. I like Romana, and K9 is one of my favourite companions, so I'm not happy that Romana and K9 have left the Doctor. <laughs> no, no, it's going to happen. <laughs> Six and a half out of ten. Okay. Keeper of Draken. This story is good, but I didn't really like the design of the Melka very much. It is good that the Master is back and we will get to see him a lot more. I don't like... I didn't like that he took over Tremaz at the end. I wish he had taken over someone else instead. I like Nyssa. She was good. But five out of ten. Do you think he didn't like the design of the Melka in that he didn't like it as in he found it frightening? Or he didn't like it as he found it dull? Or dull? I gotta say, I when terrified, really, his age. See, I found it really dull. But you were like in your forties at that point. It was then... a TARDIS walking around. Who's not? Who's not going to like that? No, but I found the design. Well, we didn't know it was a TARDIS for like three episodes. No, but, but no. I found the design really frightening. When I was what year was this? What year was when I was eighty-one? Eighty. Oh, no, so eighty. Eighty. We're just trying to. Okay. Uh, no, it would be in 81, early 81 by Keeper of Tarkin, aren't we? Okay, so I was four, so oh, that's, early, yeah. maybe I was younger than Logan. Mm. Oh, that's fair. With eight. Yeah. Okay, I was half the age of Logan. Okay, fine. Karen. Logopolis, I enjoyed this story, although I wasn't sure why the Doctor and Adric wanted to measure a police box in episode one. <laughs> maybe it is. <laughs> I thought that Tegan might become a companion when she entered the TARDIS and then got lost inside. I like the fact that she is an Australian companion. I also think it is good that we have... Uh, hang on, I've just lost my place. I also think it is good that Nyssa is a companion. We have more companions now than the two that we have had for a while. I still like Adric as my favourite companion, though, because he is very smart. It is good that the Master is back with his own body. I didn't expect the Doctor to, re to regenerate in this story, Ooh. and I really like the clips of old companions and monsters. While I really like the fourth Doctor, we have had him for a while, so I'm glad that we are getting a new Doctor. It was probably the most serious story that we have seen so far, with the last episode being about the Doctor and the Master teaming up to save the universe. Score, 8 out of 10. Mm. Okay, little bonus now. K9 and company. It was. I bet, I bet he loved it. It was really cool. When they were holding the ceremony, it looked really good. K9 was very good, and it was nice that Sarah got to meet and work with him. Score, my favourite part was the theme music. <laughs> 10 out of 10 for K9 and company. Okay, I can live, I can live with that. It's okay. 
All right, his dad Adrian says, after Logan's least favourite story for each of season 16 and 17, Reboss Operation and City of Death, were my favourite stories, we finally agree for season 18 with Ogopolis coming out on top for both of us. I must confess that I have a real soft spot for season 18 with everything feeling so fresh and every story barring Megloss being above average in my opinion. I will be interested to see what Logan thinks of Peter Davison's Doctor. And we don't have to wait for that, because with it being so long since we've done a podcast, here's the first half of season 19. <clears throat> Castrovalva. This story was good, and I liked the fifth Doctor so far. It was a bit boring how long it took the Doctor to recover from his regeneration, and I didn't like all the time they spent in the TARDIS in episodes 1 and 2. I liked all the different parts of the town of Castrovalva being all mashed up together, and I didn't realise that the Portreeve was the master. Five and a half out of ten. Okay. For to Doomsday, this story was good. I liked how there were talking frogs and that they could change into anything. I thought it was strange how all the people were androids. I liked all the dancers from the different <laughs> ethnic groups and also the monopticons. I score six out of I ten. Hated the, I hated the episode of Interpretive Dance. It's just... <laughs> Just it's funny I remember that. I was just thinking of it, so I've not watched that since Transmission. Yeah, I hated I, it too on Transmission. I watched it a few years ago oh. when it came out on DVD and I really enjoyed it. I watched it, I liked it on Transmission because it's going to hurt me. I fell asleep during the dance. Anyway. You're an anti-human, Matt. Yeah. <clears throat> Kinder. What do you think he's going to make of Kinder then? Um, He'll say it's either weird or complicated, I'd imagine. Will he like it? But, uh, mm, no. This story was good. I liked the Mara and how it turned into a giant snake, but it was a bit confusing with all the Tegans in her dream. It was funny at the end of the second episode because you thought there would be something bad in the box, but it wasn't bad at all. I liked how the Doctor and Todd were shown visions by the wise woman. It was funny when the old woman called the Doctor an idiot, and I told one of my friends at school about it. I didn't like Hindle because he had a lot of rage and was silly because he was playing with all the cardboard people. It was unusual that Nissa wasn't in the story. Seven out of ten. Mm-hmm. See, I was expecting him to hate Kinder too, mm-hmm. but actually Kinder in Warrior's Gate as well. He didn't seem to mind. The Visitation. It was good, but it was not an amazing story. Why did the Pteroleptals look like lava monsters? I liked when the android was wearing its cloak to disguise itself, and I, I liked that too, actually, because you couldn't see that bloody stupid design of the android. And he says... Uh, I liked how the villagers were controlled by bracelets. Five and a half out of ten. And Adrian Sturrock says, next batch will follow in a couple of weeks. But in as far as our recording schedule is going, might be a little bit longer than that before we get to them. But never know. Maybe we'll have another season and a half by the time we do. Because I'm rather like enjoying this, finding yeah, out what an eight-year-old thinks of Doctor Who as we go through it. Right, I have got... <clears throat> about... I love the fact that his dad's obviously not spoiling things for him, so he, he wasn't expecting Tom Baker's regeneration. Yeah, no, that's great. Mm. Right, I've got loads of films to review, so I'm going to whip through them very fast. I was going to cut this list down, but actually I think just about everything on it is worth mentioning. Oh, there is one more um, uh, audio I forgot. Jago and Lightfoot Forever, which is the one that they recorded after... Trevor Baxter died. So, Trevor Baxter, Trevor Baxendale? Now I've confused myself. And Trevor Baxendale's a writer. 
Yeah, Trevor Baxter. Yeah. Oh, God, see, I hate it when my brain <laughs> isn't does that. Isn't there, isn't there a banister in there somewhere? God knows. Let's move on before we confuse ourselves even more. Um, <clears throat> so it's three CD thing. One of them is bringing together two short trips or a two-part two short trips that had been available on the website but not on CD. One of them is a CD of interviews of people talking about working with him and working on the series. And the other one's a brand new story that they've concocted using clips of him talking from other stories so that he could feature in it, but that essentially forms the two characters being split up and Jago looking for Lightfoot. And considering the hurdles they had to jump through in order to do something like this, which is totally not cynical. It's just done in a really nice way to be able to sign off on a series that they didn't realise that, you know, obviously didn't know they were going to have to sign off on. Mm. Given the hurdles they had to jump through in order to do it, I think they've done an incredibly good job. And the only thing that maybe slightly spoils it is the fact that, obviously, where they have used clips, the clips aren't necessarily emphasised in the right way for the scene sometimes. But there's nothing you can really do about that. So... Apart from that, it works really well. Right, film reviews. It Lives, which has been advertised as a horror story. It's about a guy, to cut a long story short, it's about a guy who gets trapped in a bunker who thinks a nuclear war has happened above and he's all by himself. Is he by himself? Who knows? He's down there with a the computer. It is very, very, very deliberately The Shining meets 2001 A Space Odyssey. The director He's obviously a massive Stanley Kubrick fan. And he, to give him his due, he tries to inject it with as much of the sort of philosophical stuff as you'd normally get in a Kubrick film, which he doesn't quite pull off. It's not as good as a Kubrick film, and it is just a pale imitation. But because he is at least trying, it's worth watching. It's not a bad film by any stretch of the imagination. The thing I said about it in the review is, I think his next film might... Obviously, you don't know which way these things are going to go. I think his next film, if he can escape from just remaking Kubrick, I think his next film might turn out to be really good. We'll just have to wait and see. It's interesting. Peter Rabbit, for all the furore about how dare they do Peter Rabbit with James Corden, was actually really good. Mm. James Corden's a good actor. He does Peter Rabbit plenty well enough. There are scenes with the animals dancing and all this kind of stuff. The main fury about, was about the anaphylactic shot. That, that was one of. Yeah. There were lots of furories about okay. it. Okay. But actually somebody said in one of the other reviews that I read after it's not really there as a shock. Mm. It, it's been blown out of all proportion really that bit. And yeah okay probably if you thought about it again you might not put it in but it's a case of people, I think maybe it's a case of people jumping on that because they wanted to find something to complain about and really there isn't anything in the film to complain about. It's not as good as Paddington, which is obviously the thing that's inspired it, mm-hmm. but it doesn't fall as far short as people think and for an hour and a half, especially if you've got kids, it is terrifically entertaining. And the people who play the humans in it, which is Donald Gleeson and Rose Byrne, are absolutely brilliant. Uh, Tomb Raider, the reboot with uh, Alicia Vikander. Um, It's a little bit by the numbers, but she's terrific. And the director doesn't make the mistake of trying to make it like a video game. So a lot of the action in it is short and sharp and to the point. 
there's not a great deal of comedy in it except coming from her. But the guy, oh, I can't remember the actor's name, Lee Chung or something, who plays a sort of second in it, he doesn't get as much to do as he really should have, but he's so good and his chemistry with her is so great. So you're thinking if there's a sequel, it'll probably be if there's a sequel, better, yeah. it'll be a lot better. But it was good. I really enjoyed it. It was like a decent 7 out of 10. Not an 8, but a 7, I would say. Mm. Um, Jackals was... Uh, by one of the people who's worked on pretty much the whole Saw series and has directed the last two or three. And this is one of those Manson-type things. It's specifically about deprogramming somebody who's been involved in a cult. Um, It's got Stephen Dorff in it, who's completely miscast, but even so, it's Stephen Dorff, so he brings a whole level of interest to it. But sadly, even though it's like an 80-minute film... Less than halfway into the film, they get to the siege where the cult come for the boy. And after that point, the director does a decent enough job of just about managing to keep some tension up. But, I mean, it's a story that's been done so much better by other people. It was very disappointing. Wes Craven's Mind Ripper was supposed to be... It was supposed to be the third Hills Have Eyes, even though it had nothing whatsoever to do with any of the other Hills Have Eyes. I described it in the review as like a really third-rate X-Files episode done badly, and that's about as best as I can say about it. Lance Henriksen's in it. He's quite good. Oh, the film, he takes his kids. He used to work in this top-secret facility. He leaves it because he's disgruntled about the direction the project's going. Several years later, he gets a distress call... So he bundles his kids into the helicopter and takes them to this top secret facility that he's just got a (laughs) a distress call from. I mean, that is the kind of logic this film is made of. It was diabolical. Iron Monkey was... Do you remember Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon? Yeah. Iron Monkey came out five years earlier, but in the immediate aftermath of Crouching Tiger... Film studios wanted something else similar that they could put out, so they put out Iron Monkey, which is by far the superior film. Um, Most people probably know what it's about. It brings together two sort of legends of the sort of martial arts world in a great story that's terrific fun and also very funny, and the action in it is terrific. Highly, highly, highly recommended. Now out on Blu-ray. It came from the desert, which is a film of... A really early video game, so like uh, a yeah, it came from the desert. It was like a really really early video game. So how you make a film of a really really early video game? Mm. Well, you can't really. So Maybe in name alone, it's sort of in name alone with some of the sort of setups. It's actually not terrible. It's better than that sort of premise might suggest. It's about. A, an underground facility in the desert that's been breeding alien DNA with ants. So you've got giant intelligent ants. And a bunch of kids are on a kegger party in the desert when it turns out these ants are woken up and aroused by alcohol. So what do you know? But actually, considering what it is and how low budget it is, uh, it's not great, but it was fun. I quite enjoyed it. And finally, The Lodgers, which was this horror story. I think it's um, set in Ireland. Yes, set in Ireland, just after the First World War. Two children whose parents have killed themselves are living in this house. 
isolated from this village, big house, and they're being trapped in the house by the ghosts that live in the house, that their parents have given them instructions to placate. It's very, very cliched. But despite the fact that it's very, very cliched, the director's actually made a really good job of getting decent performances. The sort of script in terms of dialogue and things like that is actually above par for this sort of film. And um, if you can sort of turn off your cliché detector, it's actually quite an effective horror film, to be honest. Um, Oh, and two more to mention, because I just had two films this week as well, one of which is Hansel and Gretel, which is a Korean adult horror, sort of slightly in the sort of J-horror type area version of a fairy tale, which actually, because what I do is I'll watch a film, write the review, and then look to see what other people have said afterwards, because I don't want to be influenced. And afterwards, there were a lot of reviews saying, well, this is Hansel and Gretel in name only, but it doesn't really do anything that's in the story. But actually, it's one of those things where they've really intelligently taken all the elements of the story and reworked them for their new story so that you don't necessarily recognise them, but they are all there. It was a bit too long and a bit too slow, but it was absolutely gorgeous to look at, although the Blu-ray transfer actually brought out a load of artefacting on Mm. the filming that you really wouldn't want to see, but nevertheless. Mm. But I actually recommended. I gave it seven. I was dithering between a seven and an eight. The other one is The Human Goddess, which is a Hong Kong film from the early 1970s, which is basically a musical carry-on film (laughs) involving an angel who comes to earth and falls in love with this fella and saves an orphanage from being sold off. It was just really tonally bizarre. It was it was like singing in the rain meets, I don't know, a matter of life and death or no, no. Um, what's the Christmas one with the angel? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life. Wings it was of, like... Wings of Desire. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was like Wings of Desire on the sets of Singing in the Rain, written and filmed by the people who made the Confessions movies. It was very bizarre. And not terribly good. But if you like those kinds of things, especially, I'd say, the carry-ons and the Confessions films and stuff like that, early British com- uh, comedies of the late 60s and early 70s British... If you like those sorts of things, it's really interesting to see a sort of Chinese film that does very much the same sort of thing, but with a sort of Chinese sensibility. Very, very strange. Right, that's it. I've torn through all the films that I've watched in the last two months or whatever it is since the last time we reviewed films. Anybody else got anything they want to throw in, like any films that have been out that you two have seen? I rewatched Coco for the first time since seeing it. The cinema is still an awesome film. Oh, it's out on, D- on DVD and Blu now, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, I've got to get a copy of it. Oh, it's just... Yeah. You can watch it one way, which is to just... If you've got a decent-sized telly, which I know you have, and just, just watch it, because it's just so vivid, and oh, the detail in it, and it's just beautiful. And the other is, emotionally, the story is just mm. fantastic. Lump in the throat, again. Yeah, yeah, and and it's interestingly, I t- I think I've mentioned before the first time I watched it, I took my eldest daughter who recently lost a friend at a unit that she goes to, so she found it touched. What? When you say lost a friend, do you mean lost a friend? Or literally, just... literally, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, or, or a colleague at the. Okay. And um, so it's t- obviously it's touching on loss. Yeah, and it's yeah. touching on dealing with grief, 
And um, it's funny how they. I was in two really minds. young, isn't it? Yeah, I, I. Yeah, I was in two minds as whether she should see it, but she did see it, and she did get upset afterwards, and she couldn't really tell me why she was upset. And it obviously touched on certain nerves. It wasn't down to the film. It wasn't the way the film was written. Mm. And I got her to watch it again yesterday, and she really enjoyed it. And she said, oh, "I don't really know why I got so upset last time." I said, "Because because it touched in because it was raw." Yeah. And um, but I do actually, I would recommend it as a film, particularly for children to watch. You have lost people, because it does talk. You know, talk, it's it's dealing about dealing with grief, and finding that way of dealing with the memory of that person, yeah, and yeah. what that means to you, and how that helps you deal with the grief. So I think I just think it's a stunning film, beautifully written, lovely sideswipe twists, not proper twists, but you know, bit, lovely bit of mystery. Yeah, actually. yeah, yeah. Oh, it's just great, really good. Oh, and all the characters actually play instruments, the chord shapes. Oh right, and they play guitar. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. which is always a bone of contention. Absolutely, right? yeah. I think you know, I had a review copy of um, Son of Bigfoot which involves a bit of guitar playing. And if I remember rightly, they were doing that in there too. Mm, mm. If I remember rightly, I can't remember. But it's, that's usually something I notice as well. Matt, anything? Nope. Really? No, I don't know if you've seen Deadpool. Deadpool yeah. 2? Yes. No. But we've not talked Makes about that on here. Oh. <sighs> I watched it a fair amount of time ago. Okay. I think it's good. I like Deadpool. I like the idea of Deadpool. So it's it's this kind of there's bits of gross out comedy. Mm. It doesn't, it's very self-referential, very sort of fourth wall breaking. And the second film, it, it carries that on. Um, it does more of it. I didn't get fatigued. So I've read some reviews where they talk about being tired by, by it. So it's the sort of comedy that, that has a it's kind of a certain, so yeah, but you can only endure it for a certain amount of time oh, really, yeah. before it stops being, new and starts being a little bit boring I think but, but that didn't happen no because they they managed to turn up the dial on it enough from and the reviews I read it got a bit darker than the first one so that gave it more Is that yeah right? but even even with the darkness it was sort of still undercutting I think yeah I think it went it but went, that gives it a different place to take it right it did um I think what saved it was were the other the other characters uh so the main the main baddie is a guy called Cable, played by Brolin, Josh Brolin. Josh yeah. Brolin. Oh, thank God for that. <laughs> and he's really, he's really good in it. Especially with with Deadpool has a certain character. Cable has a very sort of dour, very serious, traditional comic book villain, complex comic book. I'm just loving that, that line about uh, putting them together. It just is that line about uh, you're straight out of the DC universe, which. Yeah, 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 and that's true. And Domino, there's another character called Domino in it, who's who's very good, played by someone called, I think it's Daisy Beats or something like that. Um, and she's obviously, you know, it's the sort of thing that they might not have intended to bring her back in the third movie if they're going to make it, but they're going to have to bring her back in the third movie right. because she's so obviously the if not the, the second best, the best character in the whole thing. Yeah, okay. Really well performed. What about... Did anybody go and see the new Jurassic Park? No. No. I know, I love Jurassic Park, but I've just been to see Solo and I didn't get the opportunity, so I'm going to have to wait for the Blu-ray now. I've heard good things. I've heard, yeah. I've heard that they've... I've heard it moves it on quite considerably. And the way it's directed, I've heard, is quite distinctive. Mm. But it just... 
I'm just, I'm just not interested. No, in going stop to talking about Jurassic. I'll watch it eventually. They're my bread and butter. <laughs> um, what about we didn't talk about talk about Infinity War, did we? I don't think we've did talked we? about that. I, I think, think we, we did. did. We did. Oh, you did actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I've seen Ocean's, Ocean's Eight. Oh, okay. Which is very good. Yeah, we were going to talk about that. Weren't we? Ocean's Eight is fun. Um, it's been, How does it measure up though? Because there's been so many oceans films now. There've been three oceans films. This is the fourth. Um, I'd say it was better. It was better than the 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 other two, the oceans twelve and thirteen. So the first one is oceans eleven, it? twelve, and thirteen. Eleven, yeah. twelve, and thirteen. So this is number eight. Um, I think it's got it's got obviously it's a more female cast. Um. They're all really distinctive. Uh, so I think Kate Blanchett, uh, Helena Bonham Carter, um, they're really good. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a sort of a pure story. It's a simple story. It's got it's not um, amusing bits. Oh God, director's name's gone out of my head. Who did Ocean's Eleven? No, did it's, not it's not Soderbergh. Soderbergh yeah. Yeah. No, it's a different director. But it Which keeps, is probably good because I found yeah. that Soderbergh's one of those directors. Sometimes it's genius, sometimes it's just really self-indulgent. And I think they're Oceans films, or at least... I've seen the first two, I don't think I've seen 13. The first one was great. Yeah. The second one was sort of heading into over-self-indulgent. Well, territory. self-indulgent is what the Oceans films are supposed to... There's a, yeah, there's a, there's a fine line between but, and doing they, it. I think yeah. they crossed it in the second two films. Yeah. This one is still self-indulgent. But it it kind of it brings on the right side of the line. It's got James yeah. Corden in it. Oh, is it? But it's still quite good. Well, he can act. He's a good it's, actor. Yeah. It's just yeah. what he brings sure, to what he does. I'm not sure he's necessarily at home in big Hollywood movies. No, perhaps not. You see James Corden turning up in a big Hollywood movie, and you think, oh, there's James Corden. <laughs> well, we do. Somehow got but presumably, in presumably most, well, most of the audience of the movie won't. Well, probably the American audience audience is now thinking oh there's that guy from the late late show turning up and do you know what it's like though it's a bit like when eddie Izzard turns up in a film isn't it like it doesn't you don't, matter like you what did happens he's yeah he's eddie Izzard. yeah i don't think yeah. i've seen a film where he isn't well it's also like people like ricky gervais and whoever else i suppose yeah 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 i've been in i mean it's what if you write a part that is for somebody who is very much like Ricky Gervais or mm. James Corden or Eddie Izzard, you'd be a fool not to cast him in that part. I think Eddie Izzard just about escapes it. If you watch, because he's in the TV series Hannibal, and he's very, I mean, yes. He's yeah, also he's in Eddie the, Izzard, but he, he manages to squeeze his, his American accent improved. Bless it. I can't remember if he does an American accent. Only, I don't also, know if I mentioned it on here that I'd recently rewatched Mystery Men. I right. mentioned that, didn't I? No, oh, I don't know. I don't Have you ever so. seen Mystery Man? Yes. Yeah. Is he in that? He's in that, yeah. He's the disco... Is he Disco King or right. Mr. Disco or something like that? He's a guy who turns up in a fur suit and mm. fur coat. I remember and, it's a long time since I've seen it. And does his head... Eddie Izzard's head wobbling. Eddie Izzard's the villain in the BBC's recent Day of the Triffids from about six or seven years ago, whatever it was. Okay. I mean, I, I love. Quite, the, I don't get like, me wrong. I, I love like the guy. One. I reviewed that one well. For, yeah, I, I think like I reviewed it. that one for Dan of Geek. I've got to do it for. Um, I've got to do it for the magazine because mm. they're going to do a series of reviews of TV things that were on that 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 for one reason or another they never covered. 
Twelve, yeah. Yeah, so I I've offered to do Dale Triffids for that, and yeah, that'll be a mostly positive review from me too. Spoilers, but uh, yeah, no, I think, but but I think Eddie Izzard is slightly a weak link in that because I do think it's a little bit difficult to take him seriously. So I completely get what both of you are saying. He does, he does, he does have the capacity to give a performance that's not Eddie Izzard in air quotes, but by the same token. He still is Eddie Izzard, so you're always going to get some of Eddie Izzard coming through, mm. no matter how much he tries not to do it. So, you know, yeah. it's one of those in-between things, isn't it? Mm. Anybody Odd, got... Oddly, Alan Davies doesn't. So Jonathan Creek, mm. whatever you think of Jonathan Creek, Alan Davies is Jonathan Creek. Jonathan Creek, yeah, absolutely. So Alan Davies manages, and I've, I don't know whether, maybe it's because his performance in that is so bland... And understated. Yeah, maybe. But actually, he just powers through. Or maybe his stage performance is very understated and bland. Whereas Eddie Izzard is very heightened. And James Corden is very heightened. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. I think we're back just, to Bradley Walsh, aren't we? I think yeah. he's just playing yeah. himself in Jonathan Creek. I think that's kind of the idea of it, really. Possibly. Yeah. And that's perhaps why it feels natural, because mm. he's just being himself. Yeah. Have you um, heard any of the Callan Big Finish? No. Because I was just thinking about Frank Skinner. Yeah, yes, yeah. I was intrigued by that too. Mm. Oh, listen, Frank Skinner and um, ben, ben, ben Miles? No. Oh, yes. Um, Is it Ben Miles? Yeah, Ben Miles oh. from Coupling. I listened to the trailer for it and thought it sounded really dull. Really sort of po-faced. Oh, uh, really? But I don't know Callum. Yeah, but then they've taken I'm, two I'm comedians. Fasc- I'm fascinated so. to listen because it's not my sort of thing at all. No. Um, no. I'm currently trying to throw myself out of my own comfort zone and I want to read some... Mystery novels. I watched a a film called The Greasy Strangler, which I can recommend if you want to throw yourself out of the comfort zone. But don't watch it with any of your family around in the same same house. (laughs) It's one of those outrageous comedy horror. Really, really funny. Well, speaking of outrageous things, I got a copy of Flesh and Blood coming as my next review film. Which probably, no, I don't know. It'll be here in the next couple of years. You know what Flesh and Blood is? Remind me what Flesh Verhoeven's first English okay. language film. Oh, okay. He was struggling to get funding in the Netherlands because even the Netherlands thought he was a bit, yeah, too much. So he comes over to, um, well, English language. It was filmed in Europe, Spain, I think. Um, set in Italy in 1501. Oh, dear. It's, yeah, Paul Verhoeven doing medieval and not... Holding back on anything, but the, you're the origin. So what he did first was Dutch television series with, I think, yes. it was either, is it Dolph Lundgren? Yes, this is a version of that. But but they were for children. Yeah, so he did a he did like it's Ivanhoe with with William Russell. He did this on Dutch TV. This and then he goes into the cinema. This has got characters from history that were in that. Right. Okay. I okay. believe right. if I'm if I remember rightly. Okay. But yeah, this is. You couldn't get more grown up. Even in this day and age of um, X certificate films coming out with 12s and 15s because mm. the BBFC have uh, loosened up some of their restrictions, Flesh and Blood is still an 18. Mm. It is very grown up. Okay. But I'll talk about that more next time, probably. Uh, next next time I'll be able to talk about, I'm going to try, have you had a look at Final Space yet? That's just come up on Netflix. No. Which is a new sci-fi animation, comedy animation. 
which comes across. I watched a bit of the first episode. The animation is beautiful. It's all compu- computer. It, it looks like it's drawn a bit like um, uh, Morty and Rick and Morty. Rick and Morty, but it's got it's, it's CGI. It's lovely and smooth, like CGI okay. stuff. Oh, wow. um, and it comes across as kind of somewhere between Future Armor and Red Dwarf, mm. with a bit of Rick and Morty thrown in. Okay. But uh, yeah, I'd be interested to see. I'm always fascinated to see whether sci-fi comedy works because it so often doesn't. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Well, when, when we say next time, of course, the next time we talk will not be the next time people hear us because we've already recorded the next episode oh, yeah, yeah. for this one because we wanted to do this because of the news <laughs> and uh, bung it out quick. So, so actually, the next time we get together to talk is likely to be late August or September, I think, for reasons that I'll go into on the episode we recorded a few days ago that people will hear soon. Anyway, unless there's anything else, I think that's it, is it? Okay, then, until next time, where it might be David Banks again back to talk about Hour of the Cybermen, if um, everything goes to plan. Um, I was JR. I was Matt. I was Simon. And we'll speak again soon. Or not, as the case may be. (laughs) 